Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome to the Field Goals Podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz, and joining me today, Field Goals writer and editor Alistair Corp, aka One Seattle fan. Welcome back to the show, <laughs> Alistair. Thank you. Yeah, I do not. Uh, I don't endorse that moniker. I don't. I don't no? recognize it. But. Uh, but yes, thank you very much. I for... thought that's how you were being recognized now in some media circles as just one Seattle fan. That's what I that's what I knew I'd I'd really made an impact as a writer in the landscape when I was recognized as one Seattle fan. It's like brilliant, great. That's that's that felt good. It felt good. Well, let's start there because we've been talking a little bit of free agency. The free agency period will begin here in a couple weeks. And I can't believe it's almost there, but it was Bruce Irvin who responded to one of your tweets and showed some potential interest in coming back to Seattle, it looks like. Yeah, which, uh, I mean, great, because I love, and I I think I said it as a follow-up, but it's like, the thing I love most about Bruce Irvin is, I mean, good player, good player and stuff, but every time he ever, like, tweets about the Seahawks or anything, you just look at it and you're like, I think this guy loves, like, the Super Bowl 48 winning team more than any fan. Like, he just has a, a romanticized version of it in his head. And it's awesome because it makes you think like that team was exactly as special as we thought it was. So, uh, yeah, love the guy and uh, evidently would be a good, good player to bring back. Well, they may need some pass rushing help because one of the things we've been starting to see in the news and I know ESPN was one of the, the places to report on this, but saying that Seattle and with regard to Genevieve and Clowney are probably in that 18 to 20 million dollar range, which if Seattle is in that range, it feels a little bit lower than what Clowney could get once he hits the free agent market. And coming out of the combine, that's tend to, that tends to be where agents and the and the teams start to negotiate a little bit more. Clowney's agent was there. Obviously, John Schneider, Pete Carroll were there. And so I, I have read some things that say that that's the time where agents want to kind of get an idea for a player's market. A team doesn't necessarily want to set a particular floor for a player, but that's what an agent is trying to get. And so if it is that 18 to $20 million range, you have to wonder if that's just, if it's just the Seahawks maybe trying to come in a little bit low, knowing that the price is going to go up right before free agency starts. Or do you think that really is the number that they're looking for and that Clowney could really be gone if that's, if that's the area where they're looking to pay him? I mean, I really hope it's the former, um, especially with, you know, Schneider saying they were going to ask for kind of the right to match any contract he gets. Maybe, like you said, it is kind of them trying to to set a low floor so it doesn't balloon all the way up to, say, 25, and maybe it sticks around 21 million per year. Um, I've kind of been in denial, or not, I don't even think it's something to be in denial about, but more so just, I didn't know that I necessarily subscribed to the theory that they didn't want to pay any pass rusher, you know, say 20 million, like after they traded Frank Clark last year, that was kind of bandied about. And maybe it was kind of some some preconceived notions in my head that I have about Clark where I thought, you know, maybe there is just something more that they weren't totally comfortable giving this person 40 million guaranteed. And maybe if, if the right player came around that they would be willing to. Um, but if they don't, if they're only willing to go to, say, 18 million for Clowney, then I think we could say that's a hard and fast rule because 
it's hard to think of like the uh, a player that's more right to give that money to than Clowney because he he's everything they value. You know, he his sack numbers weren't there this year, but he he affected the quarterback as Pete Carroll loves to stress um, as like on a per snap basis as but he's basically as effective as any pass rusher in, in the in the league this year. And then he was amazing against the run. Pete and John both stressed, you know, he's an awesome culture fit. So there's no reason to believe that he he shouldn't be back and he shouldn't be the top of their priority other than, you know, they're just not willing to meet his price point. And it, it's going to be huge, but I think he's worth every single penny. Well, and there's I, I start to kind of think about it in a roundabout way, too, because we saw Yannick Ngakwe uh, franchise tag or, or set to be franchise tag by the Jacksonville Jaguars. It makes a lot of sense just considering the way pass rushers are handled now in the NFL, it seems like Frank Clark was tagged last year. You had Clowney tagged. You had uh, D Ford who was tagged. And a lot of those and all three of those players ended up getting traded while they were under the tag. Now, the Texans didn't get as much because they waited until after the deadline to where you could actually negotiate with the player. But D Ford and Frank Clark both got big contracts. And I see Jacksonville using this as an attempt to at least get something more back than a third round comp pick when it comes to Ngakwe because they could get a first, they could potentially get you know, some seconds like the Chiefs got with D Ford. So when I think about this with regard to Clowney, if they do let Clowney go and say they want to go get Unique instead, then you're potentially going to have to pay him more than you would have paid Clowney anyway. You're probably looking at around a $22 million price tag. You don't have any of that familiarity that you had with him. Maybe you don't have the injury history that you had with Clowney, but now you're having to give up in addition to paying him as much as you would have paid Clowney, a first round pick or a second round pick. And you know how much is that pick worth to you? Would it be worth paying Clowney 22 23 and having him instead of Ngakwe and being able to keep your draft pick. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was always kind of, and I think we might have talked about this the last time that I was on, that it's like the ideal situation is they sign Ngakwe and pair him with Clowney. Now, obviously, that's not going to happen if he's being tagged, but there's no situation where they let Clowney walk and they trade for Ngakwe and then give him the deal where it's a positive for the Seahawks. Like, that is not, there's no there's no value in that for them. Um, especially, you know, Ngakwe at best has been like a fine run defender in his career. You could probably make the argument that he's been below average. Um, like there's just no real area of the game where he's better than Clowney and to have to give up draft capital to bring him in as well and then give him that extension. It just, um, yeah, it, it, it would be a tough, tough one to swallow. Um, I kind of, today was the first day where I kind of started to let it resonate that he's pro Clowney's probably leaving Seattle and I, I still don't really, I'm just in, you know, I, I refuse to believe it until he's gone because, um, you know, he's up there with any Seahawk defender of the last 10 years in terms of being entertaining to watch. Or it's like, you know, if they if Clowney leaves, then they need to be bringing in three legitimately above average pass rushers at a combined price of, say, like 30 to 35 million. And then I'll feel OK about it, you know. And other than that, then I think it's been like a failure. I, I it's it's a really tough one for me to get my head around without it being seen as like a, an entire negative on their part. Well, and that's the way I think there's so many fans out there who approach free agency and they go, oh, it'll be easy. Seattle's this great place to come to. They could easily find three guys to pay $35 million to that'll just want to come here and be a part of it and everything will be okay. But the reality of it is, is when you have 31 other NFL teams competing for all these talented players, you know, especially the guys that are first wave free agents, 
you have to make an offer and there's no time to visit to see if there's any type of fit with the team. Essentially, you're you're throwing an offer out there and you're hoping that based on some of your past scouting and research that they are going to fit well with the team. And I feel like we lucked out in 2013 when we've got both Cliff Averill and Michael Bennett in that same offseason. I, I just don't see that as something that is very likely to happen again. No, yeah, I don't think so either. And I think, uh, like you said, total anomaly, especially because you kind of, uh, those player situations was what made it so unique. You know, you, you got two players who were on the complete rise. I mean, they both played their best football in Seattle afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, they're going to replicate it this year in my head in, in, in the best case scenario, kind of in aside, it would be retaining Clowney. And then you're looking at a player like Robert Quinn. You could bring him in on a, on a one-year deal. Who, you know, he seems to be floating around on the short-term deals, but he, on a per-snap basis, has been just incredibly efficient even since leaving um, the Rams. And then you know a player like Vic Beasley who's maybe looking to reset his value. And again, you'd be getting him on a one-year deal. Obviously, Quinn, you're not going to get his best football because he's, I think, 31 now. But Beasley, you might be able to get him, get him back to a place where he's hitting double-digit sacks consistently. And then you can hit on, you know, uh, a speed rusher in the draft who who plays behind Robert Quinn. He sees snaps in a rotation, but there's not a huge onus on him where you need him to step up. Like you needed Collier to step up, and then when he didn't, you just had like a total void of talent in the pass rush. But it's just it's such a difficult thing to replicate, and uh, it's going to be you know if you don't have that premier pass rusher, it's going to even be harder because then you're you're thinking, oh great, we got Robert Quinn, but now we're depending on Robert Quinn to be our premier pass rusher, and the rotation around him is like shoddy at best um so yeah if they if they don't re-sign Clowney, i think there's potential for it to be pretty pretty uh bleak in a hurry which is a strange thing to say because i feel like a week ago i was very very hopeful about the the defensive line rotation moving forward and finding guys that are willing to come in and play on the one-year deals maybe that is the answer because you have rasheem green you have lj collier you have three draft picks in the first two rounds and maybe that's the the solution that they see, not necessarily finding guys on their way up, but finding guys to bridge to to players like Rasheem Green and LJ Collier if uh, you know Collier can rebound it. I got the sense from the combine press conferences that uh, John Schneider and Pete Carroll were kind of making the case that Collier was more hurt this past year than maybe was led on to. Yeah, that was that was kind of strange. I, I, I had noticed that as well. Um, I'm not sure if that's maybe them kind of yeah, covering for up for their yeah. Uh, afterwards. Yeah, but I mean, even if he wasn't injured kind of throughout the season, I definitely put a lot of stock into the idea that, you know, a player gets hurt in training camp and they kind of miss that entire period. That's got to have huge, huge uh, effects on kind of a, a player's development. And we saw it to a lesser extent with Rasheen Green last year. And so I definitely do understand if that was the case. Um but yeah, I, I'm not sure if he's actually carrying an injury throughout the year. That that struck me as them kind of trying to protect their player. You've been writing a lot on field goals about the potential free agents on the market that could come to Seattle. Do you have any favorites that are outside of that defensive line group? Yeah. Oh, out of the defensive line completely. Um, yeah. There. I mean, just real quick in, in terms of the defensive line, if you're looking elsewhere, um, recently I've just become really attached to the idea of Jerry McCoy because I think that's a solution as far as, you know, maybe you're not bringing in three defensive ends, but you're bringing in Jerry McCoy and he can provide a pass rush inside in the event uh, Jerry leaves. But um, yeah, I, I think they need to add a receiver. Um, that's kind of, uh, I, I think that's their biggest need outside of pass rush. Uh, and I, it, it was really unpopular. And that's honestly been my favorite part of this exercise is seeing the the different opinions. You know, you think that, 
people are going to hate this one player that you're about to write about and then everybody's in favor of it and then you think okay well, well how about this really good option and then everybody hates it you're like oh that's really strange like like one of the most positively received ones the entire series which has been going on almost a month now is tyler eifert everybody was in favor of tyler eifert really i was like yeah and at, that fascinated me it was, i think it was between that one and damaging i was like okay as soon as this publishes people are gonna hate it and eifert was so well received and it, it blew me away but um and then on the flip side, Devin Funches, a player who I'm a pretty big fan of and I think would be a really fine fit in terms of, you know, he's another guy that you bring in on a one-year deal, um, probably like $6 million or so. And, uh, you know, I think he could kind of fill a role that DK Metcalf doesn't and the Tyler Lockett doesn't. But people hated that one, which I thought was bizarre. Uh, and then later on in this week, uh, uh, there will be a post on Richard Higgins, Cleveland receiver, um, who is honestly in the last five years probably one of my favorite draft prospects just in terms of in terms of entertainment, he was a star. Like, there's a reason that his nickname was Hollywood at Colorado. He he was awesome, and uh, he kind of brings that outside inside versatility, which I value really highly in terms of the third receiver because I think that that gives them flexibility. You know, it, it allows Ty Lockett to see say 40 percent of his snaps outside without kind of taking away from where he wins best. But yeah, I think receiver is the biggest, um, and I guess I just don't value offensive line as highly, which is a weird thing to say after the last. <laughs> nine years of Russell Wilson getting the crap beaten out of him. Um, but receiver's the big one for me. And I would love to see a guy kind of bigger body, Devin Funches, Richard Higgins. And I'm really high on a Paul Richardson reunion. I, I would be really happy about that. Ooh, Paul, see, that's the one I'm most down on, Alistair, is the Paul Richardson reunion. I, I think we have, uh, I, I just, he was like the CJ Procise of the wide receiver group, <laughs> I feel like. And, and so just the, with the injuries, I, I, with all the guys, I know it would depend on the cost, but. Uh, he's the one that I just I, I have so much uh, PTSD from, I guess. I, I totally get that. Uh, that was kind of the, the consensus to that one was like, no, we if we're going to bring in a receiver, you know, it's got to be a guy who's actually going to contribute. And I think if if they ran it back with the same wide receiver group as last year with only Paul Richardson added, I would be pretty, pretty nervous about that because, yeah, you have no idea what he's going to be able to give you. But if you're able to kind of bring him in and then you say, you know, they draft a, a receiver in the third round. Then I'll feel a little bit better because I think, especially if Richardson, oh, only if Richardson stays healthy, that he could give you 40 catches. He can give you a lot of, like, timely catches in terms of, you know, his last year here, he, I think he's fourth in the league in receptions that went for a first down. You know, he became a really reliable option. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, maybe people have lost sight of that because, I mean, which is fair, the other three years were totally disappointing. Um, I, I do get the trepidation, but I, I really enjoyed his final year here um i get the i get the decision not to pay him what yeah. what uh washington ended up doing but um yeah I, I think he could be a positive but obviously there's the huge question of health yeah he did have some really nice catches as a member of the seahawks so it's uh, i i could see it in terms of that and if he can be just a reliable guy that we can be counted on as you know your number five pass catcher essentially if will disley comes back healthy and just to have that uh, another option out there it's uh along with Greg Olson. They're they're definitely going to be looking for it. But let's go back to the interior defensive line because you brought up Ndamukong Sue, uh potentially coming uh, you know, as, a, as a free agent option. Uh, Gerald McCoy, another one of them. And I think both of those guys are in the anticipation of the Seahawks re-signing Clowney and then letting Reed go. But I, I kind of wonder if they were to let, if Clowney were to go off in free agency, does that free up some space maybe to go ahead and give Jaron Reed a long-term deal. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think I'm the wrong person to oppose that to because that would be 
an absolute nightmare scenario for me, uh, especially because I think from what I've heard, Jeremy is in my head. He was it was a no brainer. He was going to get at least ten million on the open market, which I'm fine not not having him be in Seattle for that. From what I've heard, it might be upwards of fourteen fifteen million. And if you're going to give that guy a long term deal, that would be uh, very very scary to me. I just think, you know, he he's been a fairly decent pass rusher even outside of last year in terms of kind of pressure rate but not at the rate of 15 million like that's uh that's really rich for my blood uh especially on a long-term deal that that would make me really nervous um i think he's a i think he's a better player than people are giving him credit for uh at least in kind of our comment section looking looking after i wrote about mccoy you know i think people were really quick to ray off reed as a one-year wonder i don't think that's the case but i just don't think he's a 15 million i don't even think he's a 10 million dollar per year player um I would much rather kind of bring in somebody like Gerald McCoy who won your deal, say 8 million. Um, and I think he's going to give you better numbers than Jaron Reed in that one season. And if they're not going to give Clowney that big deal, that's kind of, I, in my head, if they're not giving Clowney the money, the big thing for me is retain flexibility moving forward then, because I think they do need to kind of add high, high end talent, to that defense. And uh, I just don't know that they'll be able to do it this year. if It's not Clowney. There are definitely places just all throughout the Seahawks roster where it feels like they're really good at finding value. And one of those places is at the cornerback spot. So you see a lot of people making the case, oh, go out and get uh, Darius Slay in a trade. And not only do you have to give up a pick, but then you got to pay the guy upwards of $15 million. And that just seems like an area where the Seahawks have been able to find value. You know, the increase that you get from flowers to slay, is it going to be worth that $14 million that you could spend at other places on the defensive line or on the offensive line? And with the offensive line, you know, you talk about paying a guy like Jermaine Effetti, Frank, you know, it's interesting that out of all the players that came up in the combine press conferences with Pete Carroll and John Schneider, I don't think I heard one question about Jermaine Effetti even being referenced as a potential free agent for the Seahawks. So that kind of went unaddressed. Which was, uh, I guess, uh, I, I guess everybody's on the same page, and that he's probably gone as a member of the Seahawks. But again, go to the offensive line, and they found ways to kind of find value outside of you know, when they gave Luke Jokel uh, a deal to play one year on the offensive line. But finding guys to fill in that aren't uh, terribly expensive, but get the job done well enough to to where they can spend money in other places. Yeah, and I think that kind of goes into my my idea that, or maybe just a lack of a lack of worry over the offensive line. I think it's a, there's a fairly realistic universe where they have four like passable to good starters there next year, with the right tackle kind of being the question mark of where do they go. But I mean, I think Dwayne Brown will at least be serviceable the next next season. Um, you know, his his play, especially early last year, worried me a little bit. Um, then if you re-sign Ayapati, I'm I'm a big fan of his, and I think he could give you another good year. Mm-hmm obviously health being another question mark with him. Uh, I'm a big believer in Pochich at center. I don't know if he'll get the chance to to compete there, um, but I think he can give you good snaps there. And then I, I love Phil Haynes um, kind of going back to, to after the draft last year. And I think if he kind of steps in for Fluker, if, if Fluker gets cut, I think he, he could come in and he could be at least passable. Um, and so maybe it's just kind of the last nine years of seeing the offense be productive, even with a poor offensive line and not having some sort of like, vested interest in russell wilson's success over the team's success um yeah looking at you sam um but it's like like you know what? i don't care who's in front of him the offense is going to be a top 10 unit and that's fine with me just throw the money at defense the defense has to be better it really just has to be so much better uh 
And I think, unfortunately, the avenue to do that is to spend spend a lot of money and do it do it now and do it on Jadavion Clowney. Well, free agency is coming up in a couple weeks, so we'll get to see where the Seahawks go from there. And then once we get through free agency, we'll have an idea of where the biggest positions of need are going into the NFL draft. Alistair, you you put together your 2020 Seahawks draft board, and that's something I want to talk about with you coming up next. Field Goals writer and editor Alistair Corp joining in the show, and we're talking about free agency, also talking about the draft, and this is going into your third year now, Alistair, where you've developed your Seahawks draft board, and you've done it based on a lot of the traits that the Seahawks tend to look for at different positions. Just tell me kind of the basic idea of what got you started with building this uh, draft board and posting it to Field Goals. Yeah, I think the uh, kind of the original idea behind it uh, is kind of two parts. First was like uh, the first year I wanted to kind of get really heavy into the into the draft stuff for us. A few goals is like, oh my god, there's you know every year there's four hundred odd draft eligible prospects, you know, between the draft and guys who get signed to rookie minicamp. It's like I can't really tackle all of this, but they're also not going to be looking at you know any of the corners who have arms shorter than 32 inches so we can wipe away a bunch of stuff like that it was the year that they kind of were reported to be really interested in running back it's when they ended up drafting Rashad Penny and they had very very clear ideals there in terms of size and explosiveness and so all of a sudden you know it was a massive group of running backs and it was cut down to I think a dozen that year and so you know and then Tom Cable had these stated ideas that he said at the Seattle City Hall event uh a couple years ago where it's like okay all of a sudden you know there's only a dozen offensive linemen to choose from and so we just kind of got into studying every position and looking at the three thresholds that they kind of have to clear. And for the most part, it's consistent across every single position where they have things they look for. It's obviously not perfect, um, especially like last year was definitely a uh, a learning experience for me in terms of doing it. Uh, I think that I overvalued some places, was a little bit too strict, and as a result kind of missed on a couple guys, which was great because then I got taken into this year. And I think this year uh, I'm pretty excited because I think it's going to be really accurate. Uh, I hope it's really accurate, but... Yeah, I went back to 2019, Alistair, and I, I think uh, Ben Burkirvan was the only guy that was even listed on your board that the Seahawks ended up drafting. Yeah, last year was a tough one. And, and I mean, it was uh, it was a couple things. And, you know, it's funny, DK Metcalf was on there and then he was in kind of like the top tier. And I have a rule where it's essentially if there's any guys who aren't going to be there when the Seahawks draft in the first round. Let's not bother listing them because it's just kind of not the purpose of this exercise. And so in my head, I was like, ah, DK Metcalf, he's going to be long gone. <laughs> He'll be Got long gone. Don't worry about him. <laughs> yeah, so... So yeah, it was, uh, and that was, but that was great because you know it was something like L.J. Collier. I was so so vocal in like their connection to him was very out there, which was enough reason to be kind of skeptical, right? Because, because they so met with him, I think, at the combine. They were had the Senior Bowl meeting. They brought him in for a top thirty visit. It was like there's there's too much smoke here. <laughs> yeah, they're literally just telling us like, hey, we're going to draft this guy. And then you look at his athletic profile. And you're like, okay, well, he doesn't really have the short area quickness to win inside. You know, he doesn't have any of the traits that they like outside. Like. I just think this is a smokescreen. Like, there's, they don't like this guy. I don't get it. And then, lo and behold, they got it. And so I was like, oh man, that was a really big miss for me. So it was a, a great opportunity to kind of look back. And then, sure enough, you know, I, I studied, I spent like kind of a month reevaluating everything before this year because, you know, like you said, last year was a tough one for me. And, uh, and it was great. I kind of got to expand everything. Um, you know, everything's kind of more refined this year, uh, but I'm also going to kind of be more lenient in terms of, you know, if a guy's missing on one thing that I deem a key drill or like that's been a key drill for them in the past, it's mm-hmm. not going to be totally a write off for them. And so that's where like the edge is now split into Leo and five tech. And if had that been the case last year, Collier wouldn't have been a miss for me. Um, 
had like there's this year there's an increased emphasis on the agility drills at linebacker had that been the case last year cody barton would have been there so it's just kind of getting a better idea which is awesome to me because you know the, the draft is something really interesting to me in terms of you know team building and that's what this is all about is it's getting this idea of you know their type and i think that we did a better job this year of kind of identifying their type and i really hope this year it's more accurate because yeah last year was a tough one but uh I, I think that this year is going to be a lot more successful. Well, one of the things I really like it, especially when I look back and, and listen to John Schneider in his press conference, him talking about how they start off with 180 guys. And by the end of the combine, they're hoping to narrow it down to 120 or 130. You kind of simulate the a similar thing by going through these different drills and listing their height, their weight and and the different areas where how they perform within the draft. And have guys that, you know, you could potentially match them uh, if we were able to look at the Seahawks draft board, project the guys that might be there as well and find, you know, where they might be slightly off versus what the ideal might be for the Seahawks. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think that it, I, I do put a lot of, you know, they're they're more privy to stuff like medical and and off field sure. stuff. And that's where I think there's going to be a, a bit of a discrepancy. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of the idea is hoping to kind of just just be able to list the players that kind of fit their type you know i don't want people thinking oh in the first round this year you know they're totally going to draft this guy where it's like okay well they've never ever drafted a player at that position who has you know x y and z so why would we ever think that they do it this year i do want to add real quick here got to defend myself a little bit (laughs) 2018 was a roaring success i think i got six right you did including (laughs) being highly highly vocal on watch for trey flowers they're gonna draft him they're gonna convert him (laughs) to cornerback and what did they do so defend myself a little bit there Success rate's like 65%, I think, I was looking back. But you know what? Take it last year, because last year uh, was a write-off. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I didn't give you credit by going all the way back to, to 2018, Alistair. Yeah, run it back. I did, I did go back and look, though. And and yes, you're right. I, I think I there were five or six guys. And I'll take your word for it on six, because uh, that does seem like the better number. Is that why, when I look at your board, though, uh, when you talk about you know how it matches up with uh, the Seahawks, uh, that you don't have any day one projected corners even on the board. Uh, that and there there are a couple like day one corners uh, or like kind of day one, day two corners who who have 32 inch arms. They just didn't test. So if guys didn't test in Indianapolis, like there's nothing to really no, go sure. off of. But there were a couple, I think Bryce Hall and um, and and Diggs both have 32 inch plus arms like they would be on there and they probably will be after their pro day. Right. Um, but it's just kind of a case of like if they didn't test, there's just, you know, yeah, they might be missing a key drill. Yeah. Yeah, and also they're not going to draft a corner in round one because, <laughs> like, like you said, they're awesome at finding value later on at, at that position at least. Um, but yeah, so that's the big one. That's where it's still kind of developing. Is um, But that's the beauty of it because you know, as the pro days go along, we're going to be following it along. We're going to be continuously adding. We'll get a better idea, and some guys might fall off, which is, which is great because it just makes everything kind of more clear and uh, hopefully more accurate come, come draft weekend. Well, obviously, my eyes zoom pretty quickly to the edge class and Utah Gross Matos there up at the top and fits all of the ideals of what a Seahawks player would uh, would be out of what they've drafted and looked for in the past. They also reportedly met with him at the combine. So he he's kind of out there for me as, hey, if this guy is there and available at the end of the first round, maybe this is where they go. Yeah, I think, and I, I'm writing something tomorrow in terms of combine takeaways. And one of the big ones for me is that they can't depend on the draft as kind of a fallback option to, to fix the pass rush. Sure. Because, you know, you look at it and there's so few, so few kind of day one options that fit their that fit their mold. 
but gross Matos just makes so much sense for them. Um, like you said, he fits everything that they look for. Uh, I think that he's super intriguing in terms of physical skill set. And he would be a guy where if you could sign Robert Quinn and all of a sudden, you know, he doesn't, uh, Gross Matos doesn't need to play kind of day one, be a starter, play 80% of the snaps. I think that's an ideal situation for that player to come into too, where, you know, 2021 rolls around and he can start and all of a sudden he's legit because he's, I don't know that he's going to be absolutely dynamite as a rookie, but his physical traits and his athletic testing, you know, I think that he could become a really, really good player. And he just makes so much sense that you kind of just know they're going to trade out of the spot and, uh, and they're going <laughs> to, they're going to miss out on them as they have done in previous seasons, which, uh, yeah, there's a couple guys who still haunt me and I, I fear that happening again, but he just, he makes a world of sense for them right now. Yeah. It is not fun going back to all those drafts where they traded back and you go, Oh, look who they could have had if they just would have stayed put and picked that guy. But, uh, that's, uh, I, I don't recommend anybody to go and do that. It's, it's just not, it doesn't make your day better. No, I, I mean, I think about and not even them getting drafted before they get to pick, but I think about them passing on Harold Landry, a, a, a disgusting amount. I think about it maybe every single day because it, it it haunts me. It haunts me. It, that team would have been so much better last year if they'd picked Harold Landry over Rashad Penny. My, my big thing is I go back to when they traded their draft pick to Minnesota for Percy Harvin, and that was the year that DeAndre Hopkins would have fell right to them in the first round if they would have just not traded their way and picked up Percy Harvin. But I guess at least we have a Super Bowl, so... Yeah, I, I mean, I'm the wrong person to... to, to I, I love Percy. I'll, I'll, I'll defend that trade to the day I die. It's uh, Well, it didn't work out great, but I love Percy Harvin. What a fun football player to watch. <laughs> One of the things, though, I do like about this list is it gives you an idea, and this is kind of an update that I don't think I saw on some of your past draft boards, Alistair, is that you have their projected rounds that they could potentially go in. So with a guy on the edge like Jonathan Garvin out of Florida... Uh, you see him as a potential day three guy. He fits all of the the ideal measurements that uh, a Seahawks player would look for. And so it gives us an idea. I feel like we spend so much time focusing on those guys that are going to be day one and maybe day two type picks, but first and second round, maybe into the third round for sure. But then once we get to some of those later rounds, we don't really know what the Seahawks are going to like to look for. So this is a nice guide for that. Yeah, that was uh, kind of basically by popular demand. That had been the thing every single year people had asked for. And it does make a ton of sense. So I'm glad that they kind of gave that feedback. And I think it look, it makes it just, uh, it also helps it stack. You know, I used to just put it in alphabetical order, but now you can kind of get a better idea of, okay, this is who we can look at this day. This is who we can look at that day. I would also just really add quickly here while we're looking at the edges, um, a name that I wanted to throw out. And it's funny because he didn't even really meet their threshold at the spot, but Alex Highsmith from Charlotte. Uh, but put the best short shuttle time among the defensive linemen at the combine. And I think it's three or four times. I think it's been four times now since Pete Carroll has been the head coach. They've drafted the defensive end with the best short shuttle uh, at the combine. And that's kind of like their biggest test. I think Cassius Marsh was the best. Bruce Irvin was the best. Frank Clark was the best and one other defender who I'm forgetting. So that's just something to keep in mind because that is a bit of a trend. I mean, that's, that's damn near half their drafts. They've taken that, sh- that edge. So, Alex Highsmith as a day three guy uh, is somebody that I'm going to keep my eye on. Just just kind of through that alone. See, we need some little stars that I can put in the, in some of these places for for little tidbits like that because <laughs> uh, see, that, now that's something I'm going to watch for. And just like you know how they look for. Gosh, there's all kinds of traits that they tend to look for. What what are some of the guys when you look down this list at some of the other spots to where you go? You know what that guy's an ideal Seahawk. 
And I think that it's a place that we should maybe not a guy that we haven't talked about a lot, but a guy that could potentially be drafted. Well, and uh, it, it, I can't believe that this is a conversation we're having again, but the buzz seems to be building that they're going to really, really think about running back, um, which is ridiculous. Uh, but also, I'm okay with it because I absolutely love watching running backs play. So if yeah. it gives me a chance to just watch a bunch of running backs before the draft, I'm, I'm perfectly happy. But I was just kind of watching a couple today because uh, it's something that I'm including in my in my story tomorrow. But I think they're going to really, really fall in love with Cam Akers when they watch him. And uh, he's kind of going to be in that day two sweet spot. And same with A.J. Dillon, um, who 247 pounds, and he tested in the 96th percentile. He's a freak. Yeah, that is a freak. Yeah, those guys. are, And you can just kind of tell when you watch a running back where you, you see them and you're like, oh, yeah, Pete Carroll's watching this, and he's falling in love with their <laughs> physicality. Like the way that they finish their runs, it just screams Seahawk to me. And so I, I, I do think, uh, at least early on, I, I put a lot of stock into the idea that they're going to take a running back on day two, which – you know what? Maybe it's not the worst idea in the world because they're so committed to it. You might as well have the resources there to do it. Like, let's it, you know, it's what I always try to say about like and being more rooted in reality than this idea that they should never run because they're just not going to not do that. Like, we might as well kind of talk about it in reality. And the reality is they're going to be committed to it. The reality is that Chris Carson is nearing the end of his rookie deal. The reality is that Rashad Penny might miss half the season. So maybe they would be better off kind of bringing in another high-level talent. And a guy like Cam Akers, A.J. Dillon, I don't want to believe it, but maybe even Jonathan Taylor at the end of round one, they all kind of make sense. That was kind of my big focus today, just going through a couple of those running backs, which I enjoyed. And then they really love explosiveness at receiver. And again, I, I have a big belief that they need to draft receiver. And I think Maddie, uh, Maddie Brown, has been big on the Denzel Mims train. I think Danny Kelly was talking about him today. Mm-hmm. And I watched a little bit because he posted a ridiculous three cone at the, at the combine. And he's an absolute joy to watch. I think he would slide in seamlessly with Metcalf and, and Lockett. And, um, you know, he kind of, he checks all those boxes. And I think he would be a, a fantastic addition. And I've just kind of been focused on the offensive side of the ball right now because uh, it's just kind of what I enjoy more. And got to do what you enjoy because uh, life's short. I don't know. Do you want to bring in a guy like Denzel Mims, who posted a six-six-six in the three cone, uh, <laughs> into a receiver room with Tyler Lockett? That seems like a bad idea. That's true. That's asking for maybe a conflict worse than Percy and Golden Tate. So that's <laughs> that's good, good. Good point on your part. It's one of those things that you pick up on, and uh, it probably doesn't matter at all. But. Uh, <laughs> There are, gosh, a lot of receivers on here, and you have to wonder too. You know, a lot of these guys, they miss out just a little bit. I know Brandon Ayuk is one of those guys that's very intriguing, but you know, they they tend to only draft guys with that four four type speed. He runs a four five. Who knows if it's going to be a deal breaker when you have a talented player like him? He's under the six foot threshold, just slightly under the weight threshold. So. I just I wonder how many of these really have to stack up before it really is a complete deal breaker for the team. But it does seem like the 40 speed really is a complete deal breaker. It really is, which is which is kind of strange to me because and this is a deal breaker, even going back to Daryl Bevel, where, yeah, they threw down field, but it wasn't as vertical as it is under shoddy. Yeah, but it's like there's very little times where you kind of need that, like the functional speed of running 40 yards in a straight line. It's really it's strange to me that that seems to be the thing where they're like most steadfast. You know, they really like explosiveness, but it's not exceptional by any means. But yeah, that 40 they're really attached to. Um, I would say as, as far as Ayuk goes, um, with the pro days coming, I think that he should hopefully be healthy enough to do all the tests. Yeah. And if he does drop below that 4-5, like I always update it. So if a guy does better at their pro day than they did the combine, that's the number that's shown just because 
uh, like, I mean, A, teams will have kind of their own time. So you see those. <laughs> I love the pictures that come out of like the scouts at the pro day doing hand times. And it's like, okay, there's literally an electri- electronic time. You don't need to do that. But so teams will have their own data. And they're also just looking for, they're looking for a reason to like the guy, not to not like the guy. And so if they do something that kind of puts them more closer into their category, they're going to take that figure. And so hopefully Ayuk does test in a manner that puts him kind of more sea hockey, in which case he's definitely one to watch. Because again, he's a guy like Mims who would just, he fits really well with Metcalf and Lockett. And I think that's what they're doing right now is trying to find the person who can complement those two skill sets because they're they're both unique skill sets, but they're both kind of pillars of the offense. Yeah, and of all the things that seem like deal breakers to me, this this four four forty time thing. I mean, you go back and see what Michael Thomas ran in the combine, what DeAndre Hopkins ran in the combine. I mean, they they didn't have that four four speed, and here they are among the top receivers in the league. So it's uh, you you want guys with really good hands, and I don't know if you know there there's no um, catching number that you can attach to to these guys at the combine yeah it's so curious to me because a lot of their ideals kind of make total sense to me in terms of you know 32 inch arms it makes sense for what p Carroll wants his cornerbacks to do you know the explosive and running backs it makes sense for wanting that kind of power back but yeah it doesn't really i i, I have i've yet to see a correlation of a dude who ran an ex- exceptional 40 and that's the reason why he's a great receiver other than say like tyree kill and even then he's developed into like a, a legitimate receiver not just a speedster so it's one of those ones that's very, very curious for sure. Well, and like offensive line and defensive line, looking at arm length, you know, they need to be able to compete with the guys on the offensive line. You want to be able to push a guy away. You don't want to have short arms. That seems like a bad idea when uh, when you're down in the trenches. And one guy that jumps off as a potential day three guy looking down your list, Alistair, is Matt Pert from Connecticut, the Neil Pert of offensive linemen. <laughs> exactly you're you're bang on with that that's a guy who uh i think you he, he was at the senior bowl i, I watched one of his games um oh, yeah he was at the senior bowl that's uh which side was he on because uh i'm, I'm trying to think back one side was really terrible okay, I, I, you know so that's the funny thing is senior bowl i'll like obsess over everything all week long then the game comes and i'll watch it like two weeks later kind of while i'm watching a player if they were there then i'll watch the senior bowl with it and just kind of watch their snaps but i never kind of cut the time out to really focus on that game because it just it strikes me as the least important part of the week but pert was a guy who like he was a like i don't even know how you know he's an ass you know those kind of awesome linemen who are just absolute jerks like he's one of those guys and yeah. that's I'm I'm big into that, and he's got absolute vines for arms, and that's a big thing for Solari. Um, the offensive line is one of the positions that's pretty imperfect right now because it's still kind of developing. Such a big departure from from what Tom Cable liked to what Mike Solari likes. But he's a guy who you look at, and you're like, okay, that's a pretty Solari, um, pretty Solari tackle in terms of really long arms, really good size, still pretty explosive, and you know he excels in terms of either ceiling on the backside or getting to the second level and those were two things they had a Fetty doing like with regularity last year uh and so i think that's kind of a skill set they're looking to replicate if they do have to replace a Fetty, which which presumably they will any other positions where we haven't talked about that uh, there's a guy that's really jumping out to you on your radar yeah you know i uh i think i put a lot of stock into the way that Pete carroll talked about their playing base so much that uh this past season in his, in his end of the season press conference he he talked about it really positively um which first of all is going to make a lot of people groan because it was a nightmare i also just don't think it was a huge i don't think it was the biggest reason the defense wasn't very good but part of me thinks that they're going to kind of look to 
find a hybrid of that Michael Kendricks role last year and the Bruce Irvin role right before he left, where it's a player who, you know, they play a lot of base. It's a player who can, who can survive in coverage, but also can reduce down and play on line of scrimmage and passing downs. And the big one is Zach Bond from Wisconsin. He, uh, he played, I think, like off-ball linebacker pretty consistently with Wisconsin. And he looks super good in space. He's so fluid. Uh, he's really quick. He's got great size. And he, again, another guy at the Senior Bowl who who uh, who had a lot of success. Yeah. But then he's also a legitimate pass rush threat. Um, and so I think that's that's a play for me where if they don't, you know, we are saying like um, Gross Mateos makes a lot of sense for them. I think Zach Bond makes a lot of sense for them as well. And uh, there are a couple people on list under linebacker who don't totally fit what they usually do a linebacker, but that's because I, I included them kind of with that exact role in mind and Zach Bond's the headline of that group. So I think that's a person to kind of keep in mind moving forward. Yeah. And I know a lot of people, if they go to fieldgoals.com, pull this up in the Google spreadsheet and they go, Oh, well he's talking about Zach Bond and there's like four red marks uh, along his line. But when you look at his broad jump, when you look at his 40 time, when you look at the short shuttle, it's not that far off of the ideal. No. And then again, kind of going back to the name that I mentioned earlier, Alex Highsmith, who had 4-3-1 short shuttle, best among the defensive line in combine. Bond had that exact one. So if they're projecting him as a pass rusher, he's right in there in terms of what they like. And I think he would make a lot of sense. You know, I think Pete Carroll did like the amount of base they played. Maybe even if it's kind of 65% next year and you kind of still get to play sub packages with regularity, but you have a more reliable kind of guy in coverage than Kendricks was because Kendricks was a disaster. Zach Bond is that guy, but he could also be a legitimate rotational piece off the edge, which would be, which would be great because then you're kind of, you know, you're addressing two holes at once. Um, maybe one is a huge hole in terms of linebacker, uh, but pass rush most certainly is. And Bond would bring that. Yeah. And when you look at the three cone, he has the seven, three cone, which would be better than any of the guys here uh, listed at Leo too. So yeah, exactly. So I think that he, He's a player I'm really excited about. He's kind of been a late riser, so I'm curious. Um, you know, I think there's always a, a pretty big gap between what people think on the outside and what teams think, especially with somebody like Bond, who kind of came out of the scene in January. Really, his senior role was kind of his coming out party. So I am curious as to where teams value him, um, which actually, real quick, talking about other guys, I would say Cesar Ruiz as well from Michigan um, mm. is a favorite. He's a, He's a center, so he's a favorite of a lot of people. Um, a field goals have been talking a little bit a lot in terms of, you know, he makes a lot of sense as a first round pick. Yeah. Um, but there's been a huge, huge gap between what kind of everybody on the other side seems to think great player, probably the best center in the draft, probably a first round pick, but listen to move the sticks down Jeremiah's podcast a couple days ago. Um, he said that he's talking to some teams that seem as a day three guy that they don't see really anything what? on tape. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And even, and so his, his co-host Bucky Brooks echoed those sentiments and, and looking at Bucky Brooks's top five positional rankings, Cesar Ruiz isn't top five interior lineman for him. So there definitely seems to be a disconnect in terms of what everybody on the outside sees and what teams on the inside see. And so another thing that I wrote yesterday was kind of, or today, um, you know, you, we may see Ruiz as like a a totally sensible first round pick and Seattle might see him as a day three guy and may not even like look at him in day, in day one, uh, despite the fact that he's kind of totally fits their, their mold. It was a really positive weekend for him in Indy in terms of testing, in terms of arm length, size, you know, um, but Maybe maybe Seattle sees him as a day three guy, which in that case, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about as a first round pick and they may spend zero time talking about as a first round pick. So uh, that's that's one of the more curious cases for me. Yeah, that's that's really interesting that he's viewed in that way. And Seattle, they've been known to pick up some Michigan guys uh, here in the past couple of years, too. So uh, he's definitely one that's been on my radar and uh, one to watch moving forward. Alistair, really want to thank you for coming on, breaking down free agency, talking about your draft board. 
going to be looking at that more a lot going into the draft and especially after free agency once we get an idea of of where the needs really are going to be after they they hit that first wave of free agency so looking forward to chatting more in the future and people want to go check it out fieldgoals.com what else you got coming up there on the website yeah it'll be kind of wrapping up the the free agent prep prep stuff and then just basically fully into the draft um you know I'll, I'll take some some brief gaps to kind of analyze the guys that they bring in a free agency but the big focus after that first wave will be fully on the draft um and if anybody anybody listens and is kind of interested in this draft sheet i recommend you kind of save it and keep looking back because like i said it's live documents so as these pro days happen it's going to be consistently updated um the guys included there's going to be you know additions there's going to be guys drop off as their athletic profile gets complete but uh, yeah keep checking back because it's going to change it's going to change a lot between now and the draft oh see i love that it's in google docs because i can go to it i can click make a copy and i can write on it and do all the stuff i want with it and uh, and then i can go back and and update it later on so definitely be sure and check that out fieldgoals.com look for alistair's draft board and we will be talking more coming up be sure and subscribe to the show sbnation.com slash nfl podcast stay tuned more to come until then go hawks